There was no more heroic person in the trenches, in the trenches. You know, I read the other day, I read that in World War I, there was, in those trenches, six inches they had literally six inches of space to operate, man to man to man. And of course, they were mowed down. But this is how it felt, honestly. Another parallel I used from um, the movie about the pacifist in World War II um, who would, became a medic. Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge is Pierre Pierre. Come on over this way. When the, in, in the heat of the battle, when these patients were being denied treatments, uh, I had very few people to, to turn to that were still actively caring for patients in the hospital. One of them was up in Wisconsin, was Dr. Pierre Corey. And we'd, I'd say, this man needs my help here. What can we do? Pierre? Ready to go? The man from Massapequa, the man for our times, Dr. Pierre Corey. All right, thanks guys. That's quite the welcome, I appreciate it. Um, all right, so what I'm gonna do here is, um, I shortened my lecture as much as I could, but 15 minutes is gonna be quite a feat. So, hope you had enough coffee. I am moving fast, because I can't tell this story in, in under 15 minutes without going fast. So, you guys have heard about ivermectin? Not a new topic? All right, sounds good. Um, this is, the United States medical system in one slide. It's what's called the forest plot. Uh, no, my laser doesn't work. But if you see that thin gray line in the center and all the triangles to the left, anything to the left of that line is something that's been shown to be effective by clinical trials. If you look at the columns, you can see how many trials were done. Those are all controlled trials. Um, then you can see how many patients were in those trials. And then you can see the cost of each drug studied. And if you look at the circled ones, that's the United States of Pharma right there. Those are the only things approved for use in COVID. Each and every one is absurdly profitable, patented, and pipeline drug from pharma. Um, every single $1, $0, $5 medicine is completely ignored. This is not news to you, I know, but this is, I think this just crystallizes what we're up against. Money talks. So, this, the talk of, uh, the title of this talk, right, is War on Ivermectin. So why would there be a war on Ivermectin? Well, let us count the reasons why there would be a war, right? So number one, first and foremost, is we know that the EUA for the vaccines would have never been possible if a safe, effective treatment for the disease had, had been uh, realized or recognized. So they had to suppress the evidence just to keep the campaign going. The campaign was massively profitable to an entire industry. Um, that's only one thing. It also threatened competition, which is their novel pipeline products like Paxlovid, Molnupiravir, Remdesivir, monoclonal antibodies. And so if you know anything about the pharmaceutical industry, they are wickedly competitive, obsessively focused on profits, and they do not care. They let people die from the adverse effects of their products. They've been doing it for decades. COVID is not new. It's just the scope and the scale that is literally almost unimaginable. So you have an entire industry that is highly skilled at destroying evidence of efficacy of off-patent drugs. They've been doing it for decades. COVID's not their first rodeo. Um, they've done it in numerous fields and numerous disease models. And so when they, when they saw this entire global pandemic unfold, that is a massive market for their wares. 
And so they did what they do, which is they destroy competition and then they sell their new products. You remember how they sold the vaccines using like every single media outlets talking head in the entire world, right? The psychological coercion, do it for grandma, all of that stuff. So they know how to market and they know how to uh, destroy competition. Um, this is just two little summaries of maybe a couple of weeks ago. 99 studies, controlled studies of ivermectin, 137,000 patients all over the world. And you can see the farther to the left you go with the green triangles is the higher the impact, right? And so it works in prevention, early treatment, late treatment. It saves lives, reduces hospitalizations. Um, but none of you have heard the 99 trials. You only have heard about three or four that hit the headlines of major newspapers. And I'll tell, I'll tell you about why that is. Hydroxychloroquine is an absolute uh, a joke here. 411 controlled trials, consistently positive. Um, I would say ivermectin is a bit more effective than hydroxychloroquine. Both are safe, effective, widely available drugs. So how do they destroy science that's inconvenient to their interests. They employ something called the disinformation playbook. When I first learned about this playbook, it was early on in the war. Myself, my colleagues in the FLCCC, our lives were going sideways. I was getting attacked. I was having to read articles about me that didn't sound like a very friendly or nice guy. I was like, who is that guy? He sounds like a real jerk. And then I realized it was me. Have you ever read about yourself in a newspaper? It's not fun. Um, and I couldn't figure out why people weren't like congratulating us or you know appreciating our work. Um, here we get that, but out there it's not the same thing. Uh, anyway, so this playbook, and you can look up this article, it's up there in the corner, it's called the Disinformation Playbook. It's written by the Union for Concerned Scientists. And it's a really easy article to read. They even have pictures and they have examples of a number of industries and the campaigns they've conducted to suppress evidence of, for instance, adverse effects of like asbestos. You guys probably know the NFL story, right? When the pathologist came out with chronic traumatic encephalopathy and they tried to destroy his life, right? So they do, they have all of these tactics when science emerges that's inconvenient to their interest. So then there was this merry little group called the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, right? Remember those guys? And they decided to come out with the evidence of efficacy for ivermectin. Never has there been more inconvenient science. And I'll tell you what happened to us as a result, but that's, that's called the blitz, that's the number two. But they deployed all of these, and when I read the articles, like March of 2021, something clicked. I realized that we were in a war against the entire pharmaceutical industry, deploying a disinformation campaign to the likes of which I don't think they've ever been able to before, because now in modern times, as you know, our media is so consolidated. The ownership is consolidated amongst literally five companies in the world. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry is also equally owned by those same owners, right? So it's, it's completely, all of our sort of corporate landscape literally is consolidated, controlled, and owned. And so they can use anything they want. So they literally control all of mainstream media. They run the journals, they run the agencies, and I'll show you what they did with all of that power. So just to keep in mind that even before we came out with the evidence of efficacy, there was stuff happening because pharma's not stupid. They knew that ivermectin presented a real threat because there's 10 years of in vitro studies showing that ivermectin stops the replication of about a dozen RNA viruses. So they knew what their threats were. And also, I wrote a book called The War on Ivermectin, which is the longer version of this 15-minute talk. But one of my colleagues, probably sitting in one of these tables, could have easily written the book The War on Hydroxychloroquine. It was the same war, same tactics, same results. So this is not new. But 
Keep in mind that Satoshi Omura, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering ivermectin's impacts on uh, the control of parasitic diseases, he knows about his antiviral properties, the broad antiviral properties. So he reached out to Merck, who he had uh, won the Nobel Prize with, a scientist from Merck, and he said, hey, let's study in COVID. And they said, no, thank you. And I think that confuses people. People are like, well, Merck invented it. Why didn't they just bring it out in COVID? They don't own it anymore. It's off patent. People are manufacturing it all over the world. They can't make any money off it, just maybe pennies. Um, then two months after uh, the testimony that I gave to the Senate, suddenly one night, Merck puts these three statements, which are brazen lies. If you look to the right, on the day before, that was the evidence base for ivermectin. 36 trials, 18 randomized, 255 scientists, 10,000 patients, showing absolutely eye-popping dramatic benefits of ivermectin. And yet, in the middle of the night, a pharmaceutical company puts up these three brazen lies. No scientific basis for a potential therapeutic effect, no meaningful evidence for clinical activity, and a concerning lack of safety data. One of the safest drugs in the world, one that they've distributed billions of doses across continents for decades, and now they have a concerning lack of safety data? You guys get it, this is absolute clown world. But here's where it didn't get so funny, is that I saw this, and then I woke up to media on my computer screen, New York Times, LA Times, Boston Globe, CBS, ABC, screaming, about how Merck says that ivermectin doesn't work. And I'm like, what world are we living in? We're, li we're, we're listening to pharmaceutical companies? You, you see how like suddenly pharmaceutical companies became like scientific advisors in, in, in the pandemic? Does anyone see the conflict of interest there? It seems like the average citizen doesn't. But anyway, so th this created a, a media, basically a PR campaign. So Merck in the middle of a pandemic puts up three lies and it turns into a worldwide campaign. And then everyone says, thank you, Merck, for, for steering us away from what could have potentially been a dangerous and ineffective therapy. Um, so in terms of these tactics, I would say the single most powerful weapon in their arsenal is something called the fake. That's why it's number one in those tactics, because this is how they do it. And by the way, this tactic was invented by the tobacco industry in the 1950s. And they successfully deployed this tactic for 50 years to get you to try to believe that cigarettes weren't so bad of you, uh, uh, wasn't so bad, right? Over time, it's kind of hard to suppress the truth completely over decades, and it kind of ran out. We all know that cigarettes are bad for you now, right? But they deployed this really well by just, all they have to do is conduct a trial which produces a result which somewhat makes into conflict or doubt the real truth. That's all they have to do is inject doubt. And so when you have 99 controlled trials, each one you know, consistently showing benefits, all they have to do is design some big trial, which shows it doesn't work, put it into a high-impact journal, and suddenly the landscape changes, right? And so these are the tactics they did. And if you read these trials, if you know anything about science or the design of clinical trials, the design decisions are so brazen. It's so obvious what they're doing. And by the way, the definition of the fake is designing and conducting trials with predetermined results. Meaning they can design a trial to show something works, they can design it to show something doesn't work, and this is what they did. And this is what I had to observe while millions of people died around the world, is I had to see fraudulent trials conducted by the top academic medical centers in our country. I had to see them sail to publication in the highest impact medical journals in the world. And then I had to see again PR campaigns just 
rippling across the globe because of one of those articles. And, and to see the fierce power of that kind of propaganda was truly terrifying because I see a world that's gone completely mad, completely mad because the information system has been poisoned. And I just distill for you this war on ivermectin and this war on everything, it's a war of information. They control the information. They can get you to believe and act in any way they want you to by just feeding you stuff that's going to make you act on them. So I cannot tell you how much skepticism you have to have when anything is coming from con corporate controlled media or these journals. I did not believe this three years ago. But in the risk of time, I'm not going to take you through these things, but this, these are all tactics that they do in order to dilute the, uh, uh, the finding of efficacy. And then keep in mind, they don't have to disappear the efficacy completely. They only have to do something which is bring it under the level of statistical significance, right? And that's, that's actually their real weapon because it's very easy to do that. You can design a trial very easily to disappear statistical significance because all of the trials actually showed benefit. It just didn't read the statistical threshold that they set. These are examples of those trials. Again, I keep talking about high-impact medical journals. These are the journals that are the most cited and read and the most valued. Before COVID, I, and I'm going to even talk about Paul Merrick, my partner who's coming up next, we actually believed that only the best science and scientists were published in those journals. We now have unfortunately been taught it's the opposite is true. Those journals will lie like any other source of authority. Um, one of the most brazen and obvious is the NIH, so I want to call them out. So our august National Institutes of Health, after two and a half years, they slow walk an ivermectin trial, uh, and they launch it. They hire uh, someone from Duke, and they design this trial with what's called the primary endpoint is to look at sort of the absence of symptoms at 14 days. And then oddly, in the middle of the trial, something you should never, ever do, it's actually considered a violation of good research practice, but in the middle of the trial, they change the endpoint to looking at the difference from 14 days to 28 days. And then oddly, in their paper and in their presentations, you can see the results. So anything that they set the threshold as a large P on that right corner, anything over 0.95 would have been a positive result. Isn't that weird that they change it from, what happened? So it was 0.97 at day seven, it was 0.98 at day 14. Oh, shucks, at day 28, it's 0.74. And then it allowed them to publish a trial where they're in the abstract conclusion, ivermectin has no role in the treatment of COVID-19. This is what they do. It's literally in their papers, but we don't have science journalists anymore. We don't have any journalism anymore because these lies are allowed to be done brazenly right in a, in a journal. No matter how many astute doctors pick this up and try to call attention to it, it doesn't go anywhere. It's like a tree falling in the forest. Um, this same principal investigator who was hired for NIH also pulled some sh shenanigans with hydroxychloroquine. She had a, a statistically significant positive result for hydroxychloroquine as prophylaxis based on combining two trials together. That was on their preprint version. And then when we went to, when they went to publish, they removed the data from one of the trials. It didn't show statistical significance. And the final published version concludes the prophylactic use of hydroxychloroquine by healthcare workers was safe but not effective. These are really simple, brazen lies, and they do them, and no one's calling them out. This is just an example of how to design a trial properly. So the one in the green, that's the trial. By the way, look at the top. This is done in Oxford, same professor, designs two trials to study two early treatment drugs. One is called Molnupiravir by Merck on patent. I think, of course, a Molnupiravir is something about $500 or $700. Ivermectin is probably about $5. 
And you see, they somehow managed, if you look at the patients randomized, 25,000 patients, they randomized them a medium of two days from first symptoms, which is an incredible achievement. To design a trial like that and get that many patients enrolled that quickly after developing illness is an excellent uh, platform to study the true efficacy of a drug. So they accomplished that with, with uh, molnupiravir. They also treated them for five days, twice per day. And um, then the same guy in the same group designed the trial for ivermectin. Huh. So here, they allow them to come into the trial up to 14 days from first symptoms. Who needs treatment at day 13? A few people, most people have recovered, right? And they also take the least ill, because if you don't want to show efficacy, just take the healthiest people who are going to do, uh, do well anyway, right? So they take the sicker from Olnupiravir, the healthier for ivermectin, and make sure you don't give them too much for too long, so they use a low dose for a short duration, right? These are all tactics they do, but the casual observer will not know how much manipulation is into the design of the trials. And then there's this hilarious event, which is in the middle of the trial, the actual group that's studying ivermectin says to the world, we ran out of ivermectin. I, I keep overusing the word, the word clown world. I, I just don't know how else to explain this. But literally, we have like supposedly a functioning, mature society of responsible adults that are committed to honesty and integrity. Yeah, anyway. Um, so here we have a, a large academic center called Oxford who announces that they ran out of a study drug, which would be unheard of in research medicine. You don't run out of study drugs. They announce it, and then the last functioning journalist in the world, who's uh, Myling Lee there from Epic Times, she picked up the phone and called the supplier of the trial and said, hey, did you guys run out of ivermectin? They said, no, we have plenty. I don't know. I don't know what that was about. Somebody had a really good idea late on a Friday. They're like, hey, let's just announce we ran out of ivermectin. And then it gets worse because... That trial was completed, and that's old. I can't keep updating that slide. I think we're maybe 15 or 16 months out from when the trial finished enrolling. The world still does not know the results. I want to contrast that with remdesivir. The remdesivir trial apparently completed. The results were not published to the world. We never saw a preprint version. We never saw the published version. But we did see a press conference of Anthony Fauci walking into the Oval Office saying, this is a game changer. You guys remember that? So that's how pharma completes trials. As soon as it's done, they launch the positive results through the media. You can't see the data yet. But here, isn't this odd? They were done 16 months ago, and they have radio silence, super quiet. What do you think they found? You had two choices. Either they found it worked, or it didn't work. If it didn't work, don't you think we'd hear about it? I think, my personal belief, is so many of us have called out all of the brazen, manipulated scientific misconduct that they have done, and they know there's a lot of eyes on them, and I think they can't bring their data forth. Because in order to disappear the efficacy, they literally would have to do even more brazen manipulations of the data. That's my personal hypothesis. Further, besides doing these fraudulent trials, I have a chapter in my book where I have dozens of emails from top researchers who did great quality trials of ivermectin, over and over on these email groups, they were saying, I can't publish. None of the journals are accepting my papers. Those of us who managed to get peer-reviewed and published journals through suddenly had these papers retracted for no valid reasons that we've ever heard before. Right, Robert? You remember that one? 
There you go. So Robert was my editor of the first review paper that I uh, published. He chose high-level senior scientists from some of the agencies, former colleagues he had to work with, rigorous three rounds of peer review, passed peer review, accepted for publication, and then nothing happened. And week after week after week went by, and I finally threatened the journal that I was going to go public, and I suspected scientific misconduct. And with day, within days, they called Robert, said they'd hired an anonymous third-party peer reviewer, and they were retracting my paper. Never happened before in our careers. Um, these are, and I had that to colleagues, my colleague Tess Laura in the UK, same thing. The Lancet retracted her paper after peer review uh, and other published papers. Just like they did that with vac any sort of vaccine paper that was published showing how dangerous it was. Retraction, retraction, retraction. This is the stuff they're doing in science now. And then unending editorials. That was, that's an editorial in the New England Journal. By the way, how am I doing on time? I'm going fast, but probably too long. All right, as long as there's no timekeeper, I'm going to keep... Uh-oh. Should I run? Okay. Basically, I'm just going to end by saying it's, science has been captured. It's not new. It's decades old. I just showed you some of the tactics. The rest of the talk is really to show you how the media did, hit it, how they captured researchers who literally changed their research. And then it finishes with my very chronological portrayal of the horse dewormer PR campaign that had a trigger, it had a start, it had an end, and it had the agencies involved and it was followed by the media and it drowned you with one message. Ivermectin is a horse dewormer. And where are we having this conference? My friend and yours, Dr. Pierre Corey.